The world will applaud me, its praise will reward me, and I, Flute of Flam, will podcast. <laughs> you found the one and only song. And that's how long it is, too. <laughs> Mom messaged me concerned because she was like, there's no song in this movie. What are you going to do? And I was like, don't worry, I have a plan. And the plan is... There is one scene in the movie. I pulled it up on Disney Plus, so it's around 40 minutes in, 38 minutes and about 12 seconds. Yep. Uh, where Fluter Flame horribly sings three lines of a song. <laughs> and I was like, that's enough. So that's yes, enough. I have just sung the entire <laughs> musical accompaniment <laughs> to The Black Cauldron. It's true. It's funny because I missed it the, when we actually watched it. But then when I was looking up research and stuff and grabbing things I was like oh it does mention a very brief song and so I I pulled it up on the on the movie as well I was like oh let me find that and listen to it oh there it is I don't know how I missed it but I missed it I almost started watching the Black Cauldron again on my main profile and then I was like (laughs) oh wait let me switch over to the profile we have for this show that's just named Trash (laughs) do you want to continue watching the Black Cauldron I don't Disney Plus I actually don't thank you but I I don't oh I always just when I'm re-watching portions of one of these movies again for like as podcast prep that I just make sure I like drag the bar all the way to the end so I finish it again now that's what the trash account is for so it just has like if you ever go into that account you'll see like continue watching 101 dalmatian street Mowgli's story like <laughs> just a just a litany of of items of of technically filled so that's what we're talking about today technically a film let's get into it and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing today? Oh, great. What could be better than talking about the Black Cauldron? And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. And uh, please note that the Black Cauldron will be his. (laughs) That is, of course, a reference to the Black Cauldron will be mine. Which was like in every trailer for this this thing. Oh, yeah, it was. This week on the program, we are continuing the Bronze Era with, guess what movie? We've only said the name eight (laughs) times. 1985's The Black Cauldron, of course, directed by Ted Berman and Richard Rich. That's all the excitement I can summon, apparently. (laughs) Mom, what does this movie mean to you? Well, this movie is the first one of the Disney animated canon that I remember actually getting to see trailers for when I was a kid, because I would have been eight when this came out. And I don't remember if we would have seen them on TV or if we just saw them on like other Disney VHSs that we received at the time, because I know it was on some of those like Pinocchio or something. I can't recall what I saw online that it's on. So I had seen the trailer for this a ton of times and I thought it looked very interesting, but we weren't going to movie theaters when I was that little. I was actually given a picture book of the Black Cauldron storybook, which I still own to this day. So I'm sure you read it as a child as well. I did. Basically, what we're talking about is a picture book 
adaptation of the Black Cauldron movie. Exactly. That's the sort of thing that Disney does all the time now, but... Yeah, I read it several times as a kid. What I remember is not understanding the story at all. And you know what's funny? Because I actually reread it today, of course, as preparation. It actually explains the story better in the book than it does in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there were many different, like, as with so many of these Disney things, they were releasing stuff in the long run up to making this movie. So there's like, there's some, I saw like a, a, storybook like recording version presumably similar to you know dad's robin hood record but i believe it was on tape that like has completely different scenes that were cut out (laughs) of the movie and stuff like we have to say you know there are people who are very committed to getting there was an original cut of this film uh unlike the snyder cut or the air suicide squad cut which were totally made up and never existed and people can die mad about it but the uh, this movie actually did have a completed original cut that was then changed. We'll talk about it. And there are fans who really want that original cut released mm-hmm. from all the research I've done into it. I'm not convinced it would be better. But so that's <laughs> like, you know, the so they catalog all this stuff of like, well, the storybook says this and the tape says this. Well, but the storybook is not that different from the movie, like the pictures, the artwork in the storybook is literally still frames taken from the movie. They didn't redraw anything, which is nice because it always (laughs) looks weird when they do. It really, you know what I mean, right? There's some slight differences in the story. We can get into some of them more later because, you know, they're like towards the end. And so when we're talking about the synopsis, I'll bring up anything that's majorly different because there isn't much. Yeah, most of the changes from the original cut to this cut happened in the end of the movie. Right. Anyway, I'll talk about that later. I wasn't able to actually see the movie The Black Cauldron, though, until at least after its release on VHS, which happened in 98, possibly not until the DVD release in 2000. I can't remember exactly when I saw it until we watched it for the podcast. I had only seen it that one time, and I was rather disappointed in it after all those years of wondering what it would be like, because, you know, and being interested in it and wanting to watch it. And I'd heard it wasn't great, but I was like, but it's a fantasy movie and I love fantasy and I want to watch it anyway. And then I was like, well, yeah, it's not great. I I agree, (laughs) but (laughs) but I finally got to see it. (laughs) So for me, as you say, we had the storybook, but for as long as I could remember, this movie was I always thought of it as, well, that's the worst Disney movie. That's like how I heard people talking about it. Just in general, is like that one is the absolute worst. Of course, Disney did try to bury it for a long time, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, and just like fully pretend it didn't exist. Like in the 80s and 90s, they were more ashamed of this than they were of Song of the South. Yeah, weird. Very weird. <laughs> Very weird. So that's what I was assuming as we were planning this podcast is like, well, that movie is going to be wretched. <laughs> Uh, And I'd never seen it before. I did have the storybook. So this was my first time watching it. And maybe in part because we just watched Fox and the Hound. Like, it's fine. Yeah. It's not good. I I think it's quite a bad movie. I do think it's one of the worst of the movies we've covered so far. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very near the bottom of my list. In fact, I think I only put Melody Time and, of course, Fox and the Hound below it. (laughs) But, you know... Anything happens in it. It looks good. Yeah. We laughed at all. So it's way better than Fox and the Hound. <laughs> By default, it cannot cannot be the worst Disney movie. Yep. Yep, um, yep. yep. But I do think it's very bad. 
I will say that knowing about the movie and having the storybook is actually what made me interested in reading the source material books by Lloyd Alexander, the Predane Chronicles series for the first time. Right. I wouldn't have necessarily looked for that series to read it if I hadn't known about the Disney Black Cauldron first, even though I hadn't actually watched the movie. And let's get this out of the way. The books are masterpieces. They rule. Oh, yeah. The books are great. Yeah. And I I want to talk about my relationship with the books as well. My relationship with the books, of course, is you were like, we own these. You should read them. You're reading like when I was a kid, like I was reading literally anything I could get my hands on. So you and dad would regularly try to like throw good books at me. Yep. Uh, So I wasn't just reading garbage. So, of course, I read these books. I really liked them at the time. And I have a slightly embarrassing story to share about them. I spent much of my elementary school, middle school, and high school life in various uh, gifted programs with various ridiculous names, but they were all, you know, gifted programs, you know, and that's why I became a perfectionistic workaholic. Yay! But... I don't know that that's why. <laughs> no, it's, it's maybe the other way around. But, you know, there's a lot of listen. We're not going to get into a discussion of gifted education in this country and whether or not it's bad or worse. But these gifted programs often, you know, it's kind of like as long as you're working on something that is a challenge for you, you can do it. And I cannot remember why I started this project. But I decided being like a fan of all things comedy and laughter. This was in elementary school, mind you. I believe this was fifth or sixth grade. This was one of my last years uh, in elementary school in this gifted program in EL, as it was called at the time, enhanced learning, I believe. But I decided I wanted to do a parody of something. And since I was reading the Pradain books, which at the time, and this is important, I thought were the Chronicles of Pridian. I swapped the I and the A and pronounced Y wrong. Well, you know, Welsh, it's not easy to pronounce. No, but so I decided to write a parody of this book series that absolutely no one had read. (laughs) And I wrote a play and I got other people in the program to practice it and learn it. and And we eventually did perform it for the class. And... It was called, because this, you know, was a fifth grader's understanding of parody. It was called The Chronicles of Squidian. And I replaced the Gurgi character with this character named Squidian, uh, who was like a part squid thing. And the whole <laughs> joke was that it was based off of, uh, you know, Pridian. And I, I don't remember all of the details, but like <laughs> we had pretty close analogs of all the characters. Unlike this movie, I did go, well, this is too many characters for a short play. Let's cut some. <laughs> I actually remember that as a fifth grader, I had the sense to do that. But uh, and the big punchline at the end of the play was somebody going like, ah, oh, this whole story has been crazy. And then I believe the Dalbin substitute says like, uh, if you think this was stupid, you should read the Chronicles of Pridian. Uh huh. And of course, it would be a pun because the character has been named Squidian the whole time. But then, like, literally, we had done the last rehearsal. Somebody, I assume you or, or Deb, but somebody told me, like, it's actually pronounced Pridane, which is also incorrect. It's Pridane, but that's how you and I have been saying it for years. That's, I believe, how yeah. we said it all over the mailbag episodes. So, right. Sorry, guys. And so we had to change the last line to it may be a teacher because otherwise I don't know if I would have done this, but we had to change the last line. I had to tell the guy, all right, you have to pronounce it <laughs> Pridane. And so then the punchline of the show totally didn't work. Uh, and again, it was a parody of something no one had read. It was a complete bomb. Uh, I felt very embarrassed about it. 
we put a lot of work into it. So that's that's how much I love these books that I uh, tanked my screenwriting <laughs> career before it even started with the Chronicles of Squidian. All of this is true. Unfortunately, it was all saved on school computers, so I don't like have a script to read you. But uh, so there you go. Anyway, but I do love the books and I I only read them once as a kid and perhaps they were tainted by the memories of Squidian, <laughs> but I didn't really read them since. And so this year I reread them because I was like, well, we're doing the Black Cauldron episode. And I expected to be like, OK, these are very much kids books. You know, I'm sure they were good when I was a kid, but as an adult, as a much more cynical person who thinks much more critically about stories, like they'll probably be cute. They won't hold up that well. I got to the end of the series. I read them voraciously. It was like, I love these. These are truly great. Yeah. You'll see so much different things when you're an adult. Yes. And I like I read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit also in quarantine. And I would say that they like deserve to stand side by side. Mm-hmm. In my mind, they are both great. Um, and I, I really love the Chronicles of Prydain. And in some ways, having that love of the books makes these th- this movie better. And in a lot of ways, it makes it worse. <laughs> While we were watching it, I was like, Ugh, this is so frustrating because like I love these characters And, you know, to see them done dirty like this breaks my heart a little bit. But at the same time, then I've spent the week since we watched it researching things and listening to other podcasts and reading other reviews of it. And everybody else is like, I didn't understand any of this. (laughs) I couldn't remember any of the characters names. I didn't know why things were happening. And I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess they never do explain that. And I just filled it in because I know the book's explanation for it. So I guess knowing the books makes this movie uh, comprehensible at all, but it still doesn't help it. So anyway, yeah, we're going to try to limit the book talk on this because extremely different. It's extremely different. And we can't be like, oh, Sword of the Stone changes everything from the book and it's great. Oh, uh, 101 Dalmatians changes everything from the book and it's great. We can't be like, well, the problem with the Black Cauldron is that it changes everything from the book. You could do a very loose adaptation of this story that changes everything from the book and is good. Yes. But this movie is just bad. After, you know, again, spending this week thinking about it, I think maybe they should have changed more, actually. It's in a weird place <laughs> where it's not Disneyfied enough to be a Disney movie, but it's not close enough to the books to be a good adaptation of the books. It's just... Stuck in the middle. I feel like one of the main problems with this movie is it feels like it can't figure out what it's trying to be. They were trying to achieve so many things with it and they just didn't have either. They didn't have the skills or there ended up because of the administration change being too many voices telling what was going to happen or I'm not sure there's, you know, a ton of reasons why it went wrong, but it feels like it's just not enough of one thing. I agree. There's no vision here and it's kind of boring. And the characters we've complained in the past about characters not having enough agency in Disney movies. Mm-hmm. No, there has never been less agency of characters in a Disney movie than this. Heroes, villains, things just happen. Yeah. And they very mildly react to them. And I really want to set up now who I think the main character of this movie is, uh, who appears the most, who gets the most done, uh, who has the best arc for sure. And that is conveniently placed pit. Conveniently placed pit? 
Yes, you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through the synopsis. Okay. So let's talk about why this movie has no vision. And let me just get this out of the way up front. This movie was in development for 13 years. Well, 14 years since they uh, acquired the rights to the volumes. Actual production started in 73, so it's like 12 years. Still, 12 years, two regime changes, lots of animators working on it. Our little non-history podcast can't cover all of it, so Correct. apologize in advance for that. Let me try to give you the Cliff's notes. Let's start with the books a little bit. Lloyd Alexander wanted to be a priest. He fought in World War II, and then he was stationed in Wales and England for a long time, uh, and then in France, but the Welsh part is important. Uh, he became a professor and a translator, and a writer, and he really loved Welsh mythology, and that is where the Chronicles of Prydain come from. Yep. Uh, they are very much inspired by Welsh mythology. People feel like they're ripping off the Lord of the Rings. They're more contemporaneous to them, and it's more that they're both pulling from the same myths. Yeah, in some ways. Uh, and the books are great. They were pretty successful. Obviously, they haven't had the staying power of like the Lord of the Rings, uh, I don't think a lot of people today know them, except, as you say, this Disney movie has actually helped keep them alive because yep. people know the Disney movie and some of them go back and read the books. And again, I really we don't have time for it. We did talk about it in the mailbag episode. I can't say enough good things about these books. I feel like the fact that he was a priest is important because the books are have a lot of like strong moral lessons, not in a way that's preachy or boring, but in the way that it's about Terran and Elanwi growing up over the course of five books. Right. And like a lot of the books are about moral dilemmas and hard choices and that kind of thing, which you see once in this movie not done very well. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a lot of like, you know, will you give up this thing you love and this thing you really want for something that's far more important? Right. You know, will you do the right thing no matter how hard it is? And sometimes what is you have the, you know, the choice of two right things and, and which one should you do? And, right. Uh, and, and so Terrence starts off, you know, kind of the annoying wannabe warrior we see in this movie. But over the five books, he grows and changes a lot, as do all the characters around him, because, you know, it's a five book series. And Lloyd Alexander understood that maybe things should happen. Yes. And they grow quite a bit older in that time as well. So these books are picked up by Disney in 71. I saw that it was a couple of the nine old men who'd read the books and thought they would be great for Disney. But what I read was that it was a couple of the, specifically it's Frank and Ollie uh, of the nine old men. They didn't acquire it, but when it was acquired, Disney was trying to decide whether or not uh, it was going to be an animated movie or a live action movie. And what I understand is that in 1973, Frank and Ollie, that's Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, said that it needs to be animated. This could be a great animated film. And what they really sell Ron Miller on especially is this could be a big prestige movie in the style of Sleeping Beauty. Could have been. And when Ron Miller takes over, that's really what he's looking for. He wants to announce the next generation of Disney animators, which uh, I think we've said about the last two movies. But this time, really, really, <laughs> we're going to let the young animators have control. We swear. And we want to do it with a huge prestige picture. 
And it was, I believe, his idea to film the movie on 70 millimeter, which we talked about a lot in our Snow White episode. But it is that ultra widescreen. Sleeping Beauty. You keep saying Snow White. Sleeping Beauty is really, you know, we've been talking throughout the Bronze Era of like, what movie is this one trying to rip off? Well, Black Cauldron's trying to not exactly rip off Sleeping Beauty, but it's trying to be a new version of it. It's trying to be the next generation of Sleeping Beauty. And so we talked last week about like, and then Bluth stole half the animators during the development (laughs) of this movie. And then a bunch of others left or were fired. And so it's a very turbulent time. Uh, Originally, the director was going to be John Musker of Musker and Clements, but he, you know, didn't necessarily get along with like the studio and production. And it's so interesting at this time while working on this movie, the directors, producer and executives were all on the second floor of the studio and the animators were on the first floor. So they would refer to each other as like the first floor of the second floor. They at this point, things had gotten so bad there was a physical separation between them. <laughs> and so, you know, the second floor didn't like uh, what John Musker was doing. Uh, and so the once Fox and the Hound wrapped up, they're like, let's bring the three Fox and the Hound guys on to do it. And also in 1980, because that was such a success. And in 1980, Joe Hale was assigned to produce and write the movie. Now, Joe Hale was an animator, not a writer. Um, and I think that's relevant uh, not to be mean. Mm-hmm. And he apparently made a bunch of the key decisions, like in the first versions of the script, including making the Horned King, who is a third tier villain in the first book, who kind of gets defeated immediately. They want to make him the big bad because he's the most visually interesting character. This is a good idea. Yeah, I got no complaints with that. It seems like this process really wore him down. And the thing he talks about in all his interviews is they were really trying to figure out how they could do all five books in a 90 minute movie. And the answer is you can't. You can't even a little bit. You have to abandon that. You know, the better idea, while I was reading the books before even seeing this movie, I said to you, and I still stand by this, I think the Disney version of this movie should be Sword in the Stone. Right. I think that's the movie they should take inspiration from. First of all, you take like 10 pages of the original book. (laughs) And second of all, you just make it funny because this is another thing I wanted to say. The first book, which is what this movie mostly takes from, a little bit of the first and the second primarily, The first book is really funny. Right. Taryn is annoying, but the whole joke is that all of his companions kind of hate him. Or at least like they don't (laughs) they don't have much respect for him. Let me put it that way. As I put it to you, I described it as a D&D group where one character is taking it really seriously and everyone else is like, I'm going to be the bard and I always lie and I'm going to be a princess and a wizard and I'm going to be, you know, a weird little furry thing like a goblet, like And they're just doing silly bits like they've all decided to be joke characters. And Taryn's like, guys, we have an adventure. Yes. So I think Sword of the Stone style make it a comedy would be way more successful. But they're trying to cram it together. Ron Clements and John Musker were kind of leading or at least were seen as the faces of a first floor revolution that was basically we want to make this movie good. It's bad. They were complaining about the way the story and characters were going and the people in charge were not seeing it their way. And so eventually they were like, all right, you two, 
you're fired from this movie. You have to go work on Basil of Baker Street. <laughs> and they're like, uh, can we do whatever we want? And they're like, who cares what you do? And they're like, OK, <laughs> we'll talk about that next week, of course. Meanwhile, Art Stevens, Ted Berman and uh, Richard Rich, who was called Rick Rich by the animators, hilariously enough, they were arguing constantly and the sequences they were working on, none of them looked like each other at all. And so they brought in Don Hahn to be production manager. He would go on to produce Beauty and the Beast and other things. And he became the guy who was desperately trying to hold this movie together. And there's a lot of quotes from him talking about it. Uh, for example, quote, there were three directors and the three directors didn't always talk. They would run to me who would mediate, but the three directors were splitting up sequences with each sequence having a completely different tone and tempo. Nothing was matching. That was another part of the problem. Yeah. There were still a lot of fights between the young animators, mostly the first floor and the old guard on the second floor. We have to talk about this because a lot of people talk about this with this movie, which is the involvement of Tim Burton. But it actually kind of starts with a guy named Andreas Dea, I believe is how you say his name. He was a German from Dusseldorf and he would go on to become one of the company's star animators uh, he worked on Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. He was the lead animator on Gaston and Scar, among any others. So clearly he, he does very good work. And he was brought on as the second concept art person after Milt Call. They specifically brought in Milt Call because he was one of the big people behind Sleeping Beauty. I said it right this time. <laughs> and they were like, we want this movie to look like Sleeping Beauty. Come in and make Sleeping Beauty characters and... Call was not used to working from scratch. So he basically just drew things that already existed. His version of the Gwythaints, the dragons, were basically looked like the vultures from the Jungle Book. And his version of Elanwi is very, very Aurora. And I think I saw pictures of his version of the witches who look like Madame Mim. Oh, yeah, his, his witches were just straight up Madame Mim. So they brought on Dea to make his designs a little more interesting. And he says, quote, I remember the producer, Joe Hale, saying we really liked the portfolio you applied with. You draw very Disney, but we want to try and put you with another artist who draws very differently. This other artist, this other concept artist working on this was Tim Burton. <laughs> Everybody talks about Tim Burton on this movie. You'll hear people saying that he was one of the directors for this movie, which I understand how you could get confused when there's five directors uh, working at various points. Uh, he was not. He was a concept artist. So what he was asked to do, what Dea was asked to do was blend his style and Tim Burton's style, which he says was impossible because, <laughs> you know, it's just not how it works. Yeah. I mean, if we look at uh, I'll, I'll send you a picture of Tim Burton's version of the Horned King. You can see like it's a Tim Burton movie. It's not a Disney movie at all. Right. Right. That's definitely a Tim Burton style. It's like made out of stitches. It looks like Sally. You know, there's there's no way to reconcile this. So. Tim Burton eventually gets frustrated. Quote from Dea. I remember what really broke Tim in the end when he said, I got to get the, I'm going to say heck out of here. It was time to draw these monster birds. And I had done a lot of drawings of dragon type things and bat type things and all that. And he had this idea of flying hands. <laughs> so you had a hand and he put an eyeball here and an eyeball there in between the knuckles. And it had a bat tail. And most people at the studio thought, 
this is incredible. This is exactly what we need. <laughs> and management said, well, this seems like something in Yellow Submarine and we're not doing Yellow Submarine. So we're going to do this. And Tim just left. <laughs> so basically, like he was drawing things that all the other animators, the first floor loved. They're like, oh, man, this is so creepy. It's so experimental. It doesn't look like any other movie. And the management was like, no, make it a Disney movie. So he left uh, the movie and he would work on a couple other small things for Disney. And then he would go to have his own uh, directing career that would be extremely lucrative and for a while, very, very good. And so then uh, Daya and Call are working together and they don't get along and they have very different designs for the things. He described Milt Call's version of the Horned King as he looked like a policeman as a mummy. <laughs> and I'll send this picture to you. Kind of an accurate description. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. By the way, if you want to see all these pictures for yourself, uh, I'm pulling them from a Collider article. It's a very long article, but very good. If you want the full version of this movie's history, that's called How the Black Cauldron Nearly Killed Disney Animation. <laughs> so nobody can agree on the story. Nobody can agree on the designs for the characters. Eventually, what Deos starts doing is he gets uh, whenever he got a model sheet that would approved, he would get all of the top management signing them, including Ron Miller, who would write approved by Ron Miller. And so <laughs> he had to get, he says, 12 signatures on every model sheet. Wow. To prove that, like, this is what we're doing and it's final. Yeah. Meanwhile, more and more animators were either fired or jumping ship to do other things like at other companies or jumping ship to do Great Mouse Detective, which is starting to become the cool movie that the animators want to work on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there were a million different issues with casting. So many people were getting fired that people were just asking Han to tell them advance. When are you going to get fired? Dave Bossert, one of the last key animators who was hired onto the movie, remembers going to Han and saying, Hey, can you give me an idea of when I'm going to get let go? I want to plan out my summer. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just a given you were going to get fired. Yeah. Total nightmare. Uh, again, during this time, you know, Ron Miller takes over. He's not in charge at the beginning of the movie. Art Stevens gets fired at one point because they're like, that's the problem. <laughs> if the three directors are all arguing with each other, if we have two directors, they'll still <laughs> keep arguing with each other and nothing will be solved. It was super expensive because of the 70 millimeter film. Nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. It gets even worse in 1983 and 1984. During the full year, uh, and we really don't have time to talk about this, but the short version is there was a lot of uh, corporate takeover and espionage and a bunch of stuff that ends up with Cardwalker was already out, Ron Miller is out, and Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg finally step into the frame. At the end of 84. Eisner and Katzenberg are two guys who absolutely fascinate me. I cannot wait to talk about them. They're both monsters, to be clear. They're both awful, <laughs> awful human beings, but they're fascinating, yeah. awful human beings. I'm going to save most of the Eisner-Katzenberg talk for uh, Oliver and Company, which is the first movie that they really, like, that was initiated under their rule. Obviously, Black Cauldron had gone through most of its production before they came on because it, it was supposed to come out at the end of 84. Right. But to give the short version, Michael Eisner is now completely in charge of the company. Katzenberg is 
there, well, there's a guy between them named Frank Wells. He's important. He's second in command to Eisner. Katzenberg is third in charge, and he is in charge of all feature film production. So Eisner and Wells, you know, they're in charge of the parks. They'll create a new home media division. They'll create a new Disney store division. But Katzenberg is in charge of the movies, all of the movies, live action and animated. And Roy E. Disney, who had left the company, uh, we talked about him, the idiot nephew, (laughs) comes back and he is in charge of animation. So that is kind of the hierarchy of things. And their involvement is important to this movie. I'm going to read now from Disney War by James B. Stewart, a great uh, resource about this time. The Black Cauldron was almost completed, and Roy had already seen it. He'd been disturbed by the graphic violence in the opening sequence, in which a flying dragon swoops down on a young boy, sinks his talons into him, and flies off. Roy insisted that a few particularly bloody frames be cut, but he didn't know what else to do. Apart from the violence, quote, I just don't understand the story, he told writer (laughs) and producer Joe Hale. Yeah, me neither. So they show a screening of the movie to Katzenberg. And at this time, this is when they have a completed cut of the movie. It has score. It has finished animation. They are ready to release this thing. And they do a screening for Katzenberg. When Katzenberg saw it, he was even more dismayed and blunter about saying so. The dark and forbidding story was unsuitable for small children. Katzenberg didn't see how it could garner a G or general audience rating, which it doesn't, by the way. Final movie gets PG, which had always been affixed to the Disney animated films. It would be a disaster for the Disney brand. This had to be edited, he proclaimed as soon as the film ended. Hale objected. Animated films can't be edited, he insisted. So what Katzenberg specifically was asking for is editing in the traditional studio sense of like, well, you know, we've filmed 40 hours of footage to make this two hour movie. Let's use other footage. Mm -hmm. That isn't how animation works. (laughs) Animated movies get edited in the storyboard or possibly the animatic stage. Once you are animating, because it's so slow and expensive, you are not going to animate something that hasn't already been like absolutely approved to get into the final movie. Right. Now, this is not as true of CGI films, but it is true of hand-drawn films. Right. That's ridiculous, Katzenberg retorted. You can edit anything. No, you can't, Hale persisted. It's seamless. Yes, you can, and I'll show you how, Katzenberg said as tension mounted. Let's go into the editing room. And so he took the film into an editing bay and started trying to edit this movie. (laughs) As Katzenberg began work, Hale rushed to a phone and called Roy, who was having lunch with Eisner. He's butchering the Black Cauldron, Hale fumed about Katzenberg. Yes, the Black Cauldron was dark, but it was an attempt to give Disney animation an edge to be more contemporary. The animators were in an uproar. Eisner called and got Katzenberg out of the editing room. What are you doing? Eisner demanded. Everybody's upset. I'm trying to salvage this mess, Katzenberg replied. Eisner told Katzenberg to calm down and said he wanted to speak to him in person. (laughs) For the time being, Roy, as head of animation, could deal with the Black Cauldron. Katzenberg left the editing room, but not before some succinct parting words. It's bad. Fix it. (laughs) More frantic calls ensued. Complaints about Katzenberg that Roy passed on to Eisner. Katzenberg embodied all the animators' fears that Philistines had taken control. People who didn't have the slightest understanding of animation and the hallowed Disney traditions. Which, pretty much accurate, yes. But I wouldn't say that they were, you know, following the hallowed Disney traditions with this movie anyway. (laughs) So anyway, but go on. Well, (laughs) no. But when he spoke to Katzenberg, Eisner seemed almost amused by the turmoil... 
Good, Eisner said. That's what you're here for. Yeah. So I think that's very telling of like Eisner and Katzenberg are coming in here from live action television. They definitely knew nothing about animated movies. Right. The The decision they make is no. Delaying this by seven months. We're going to animate some new stuff. We're going to cut some stuff. We're going to try to fix it. But even Katzenberg was forced to realize that, in fact, you cannot edit an animated movie in seven months. So most (laughs) of what they did was cut out violence. And they especially cut a bunch of violence out of the last scene with the Cauldron Born, which is why in the final movie, the Cauldron Born just kind of walk around. Yeah. But apparently they were decapitating people. They were, like, magically making people's flesh rot off their bones. Like, it was... It was much darker stuff. Yeah. And that seems to be mostly what Katzenberg was upset about, as in that quote, like he wanted to get the G rating, which again, the darkness of violence is not the problem with this movie. The problem is fundamental plot mistakes. Right, right. The overall problem with this movie is they didn't get the story really nailed down to a good story that makes sense. That's the main first problem with this movie. (laughs) The second problem I think there is, is that the people who did Sleeping Beauty were not all young animators new at the game. Right. They were more experienced, most of them. This was not their first rodeo. They had a set plan and there was one guy in charge. (laughs) Right. Walt you know, was a tyrant. We talked about how making that movie was no fun, but he had a vision and was like, this is the movie we're making. Right. And so the final movie feels cohesive, which Black Cauldron doesn't because I know I've just yelled a bunch of names at our listeners. And I it's I understand if you don't like didn't remember or didn't hold on to most of them. But that's kind of the point. Like it was way too many cooks and it was just chaos. So yeah, so they only cut about 12 minutes and most of the new stuff they animated was just to make things like work around the cuts. So I don't think the original version of this movie, the original cut people are asking for, it would be interesting to see, but I don't think it could save it. No, I don't think it could either. And so the movie was released. It was a huge bomb. Uh, So I have a little more to read from Disney War. Katzenberg managed to cut just a few minutes and by his own admission could only make the film slightly less bad. (laughs) Roy Disney received a film credit for additional dialogue, but when Roy appeared on the Today Show to promote the opening, he drew a blank when the host asked, what's the Black Cauldron about? He still wasn't sure. The film grossed almost $22 million, which was far, far less than it had cost to make. Even more discouraging to the animators was the fact that the Care Bears movie made using cheap foreign labor for just $2 million, grossed more than Black Cauldron at the box office. (laughs) It's true. So sad. But you know what? The Care Bears movie has a cohesive story. Yes! It's a much better film, narratively. Also, the Care Bears were already a beloved toy at the time. Yeah, people weren't like, Tarin, who was this Black Cauldron thing about? There wasn't, there didn't have to be confusion. I'm not saying the Care Bears movie is any sort of cinematic classic either. No. Pretty sure I saw it once as a child and haven't ever bothered to seek it out again. But it at least makes sense to a child as opposed to Black Cauldron. Uh, By and large, the movie was panned. Roger Ebert was one of the rare people who really liked it. I thought it was interesting to read Lloyd Alexander, the author of the book's Uh, His reaction to the film, which was, quote, First, I have to say there is no resemblance between the movie and the book. 
Having said that, the movie in itself, purely as a movie, I found to be very enjoyable. I had fun watching it. What I would hope is that anyone who sees the movie would certainly enjoy it, but I also hope that they'd actually read the book. The book is quite different. It's a very powerful, very moving story, and I think people would find a lot more depth in the book, which <laughs> I fully agree with, but it's also hilarious for him to be like, read the book. I find it very moving. Like, yeah, you wrote it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think it's funny that it's that he did react this way about it. He wasn't like, oh my gosh, you butchered my baby or anything. He's like, this is a great advertisement for my books. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And and he's like, he always comes across as a super affable guy. And I right. think that kind of comes through in his books as well, and especially the author's notes in his books. And of course, he's an author of a ton of books, too. Like, he's he was an extremely prolific author. And they're all, I haven't read any of his books I didn't he like. He won a ton of awards. Yeah, he, he was doing fine. And he <laughs> published books, like his last book was published in 2007. I mean, he just kept going for, for 83 years, right up till his death. Wow. Lord Alexander rules. He's really interesting. We don't have time to talk too much about him either, but very interesting. And then as far as the whole media release, they did not release this film in any form, didn't even play it on television for 13 years. Right. Nor was it, of course, re-released in theaters during that time. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, and I think, again, like, I think Katzenberg and to a lesser extent Eisner, like, had a kind of personal vendetta against this movie, right? Because yeah, that thing with the, the first one after they took power. Yeah. And that thing with the editing bay really was like. That was kind of Katzenberg's introduction to the animators. And they're like, wow, this guy's a huge jerk. Yeah. And he was like, wow, these animators are morons. And he wasn't as correct, but you, it's somewhat understandable. And then uh, I got a few like home video releases and was not released on Blu-ray until this year, just this a few year? months ago, May 4th, 2021. I know. Isn't that funny? I think I thought it was hilarious because I hadn't realized they actually released it on Disney Plus before they ever did it as a Blu-ray. So we can't complain about this one looking weird because it's the Blu-ray restoration. It's the Disney Plus restoration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was the most expensive animated film ever at that time. Oh, yeah, for a long time. I do think it was funny. Uh, one of the few things that actually saved the animation department was the fact that a little while after this movie came out, they re-released 101 Dalmatians, and that made more money in a re-release than Black Cauldron or the Care Bears movie did. So they were like, okay, so maybe animation isn't totally dead, but we're going to have to rethink. <laughs> yep, that's a big part of it. Also, Roy E. Disney, like, they had to keep him happy because he was part of the Disney dynasty and he helped Eisner and Katzenberg of Wells take power. And he really loved animation. He had such fond memories of it. He was like, we have to keep animation alive. Uh, but of course, we'll talk about that in subsequent weeks. Let's talk a little bit about the cast of this movie. All righty. Taran is played by nobody. Grant nobody. Yeah, some some dude. Grant Bardsley could be a fantasy character name, though. It's true. <laughs> Princess Elanwi is played by Susan Sheridan, an English voice actor. Dalbin is played by Freddie Jones. We have Nigel Hawthorne as Fluter Flam. This movie just has a bunch of, like, well-renowned British actors absolutely slumming it. Arthur Mallet as King Eidelig. 
just another one of those. Uh, he's he's Mr. Dawes Jr. in Mary Poppins. Right. And he's the graveyard keeper in John Carpenter's Halloween, maybe the best horror movie ever made. He's, he's around. <laughs> he's in stuff. He also was a voice in Secret of Nim. I think of him mainly, especially how he looks as an older man. From Hook, he plays Toodles. Yes, he does. Uh, we have John Biner as Gurgi and Dolly. Now, John Biner was a very, like, one of the early impressionists to become famous. Because, uh, of course, impressionist is not really a meaningful skill until radio and television exists. So we have Phil Fondacaro, a stuntman as Creeper. <laughs> we have, of course, the best performance in the movie by far. A guy who's never bad. John Hurt as the Horned King. Yay, John Hurt. John Hurt. Man, what can we say about him? Uh, he was great in everything. He's one of those guys where anytime you saw him in something, he's great. I would reserve the best place by the fire for him. Yes, we we love him best from The Storyteller, uh, which was a, uh, a Jim Henson television series. It's part of the uh, uh, Jim Henson hour that was on... I want to say in the early 90s. But of course, he's good in so many movies and so many things. He had a great one-off role in Doctor Who. Even I recently watched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is a horrible movie. I only liked less and less on this rewatch. <laughs> I, I think he's still good in it. Yep. I think he's still bringing the heat until the end when he just has to become a boring exposition machine. Yeah, when he stops being the crazy man. <laughs> Notably, he was also in the 1978 animated Lord of the Rings movie directed by Ralph Bakshi, which I think had a lot of impact on this movie. Like, I, th I think it inspired it a great deal. And so Aragorn uh, is who John Hurt played in that. And I think they were trying to take a little bit of that prestige. <laughs> And then John Huston is the prologue narrator. So he only has like a couple of sentences, but he also is in a in an animated movie previous. He's from the animated um, Rankin and Bass The Hobbit. He plays Gandalf. He's also in the Rankin and Bass Return of the King as Gandalf as well. But I, as soon as I heard his voice, I'm like, man, I recognize that voice. And it's like, oh, of course, it's Gandalf. I should have known. I think they literally were looking at people who'd done voice work in other fantasy things, maybe. I do. I 100% think that that's what was happening. Because, like, Freddie Jones's role is very similar to his role in Kroll. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're totally right. And and John Huston also, we should just say, is a uh, very uh, famous and, and excellent director who was super important to American cinema, uh, who also acted in a great deal of movies, and he is the father of Angelica Houston. So and, and kind of founded the, the Houston dynasty. <laughs> I think that's all the context we're going to give on the Black Cauldron for now. So we talk about it. I was going to mention about all the firsts. It, this is this movie has a ton of firsts for a Disney animated movie. First Disney animated movie with a PG rating. The first one with no real songs. The first one with CGI elements. Yes, that's what I was going to say. This is not even the full list of firsts. We'll bring more up as we go. But I knew you hadn't mentioned the CGI elements. This was something they were starting to incorporate into some of their live action movies as well with Tron. So, But they decided they were going to do it in this movie as well. And that was part of the advertising for it. <laughs> yeah, I forget the name of the guy. There was one guy at the uh, Walt Disney Studios who was really pushing computer generated animation. 
And it's so funny reading this Disney war book because he just keeps showing up <laughs> at various points trying to pitch Eisner and Katzenberg like, hey, do you want to make computer animated movies? And they're like, no. He comes back a little later and he's like, hey, so there's this computer animated movie studio called Pixar. They're like, no. And he's like, hey, you could buy a controlling share in it. And they're like, no. And Steve Jobs buys that. <laughs> and eventually, of course, he's like, hey, Toy Story. And they're like, oh, we're uh, copying this forever now. Right. They also had an unusual composer for the soundtrack. I mean, unusual for a Disney animated movie. The soundtrack is by Elmer Bernstein, who is a was a prolific soundtrack uh, composer for many, many years. And he did this soundtrack right after his soundtrack for Ghostbusters the previous year. <laughs> yes, indeed. But he's done so many great scores. I mean, he's done a bunch of Scorsese movies like The Age of Innocence and Bringing Out the Dead and Cape Fear. He did An American Werewolf in London. He did Sweet Smell of Success. He wrote the great escape theme. I know. One of the best movie themes ever. He did the original Magnificent Seven. He did The Three Amigos, which has fun music. You're listing these movies and most people are probably hearing the names of these movies and the music just pops in their head immediately exactly because it's so iconic and yet <laughs> the original true grit heavy metal the adult animated film i really like uh he did the score for the thriller music video he did devil in a blue dress like uh it's just it, it's insane it's a long long list and yet it is really hard for me to remember any of the music from this movie after even after I just listened to it. I went out of my way to listen to some of it today, just some of the soundtrack score pieces, and I still can't barely remember them. This score, I think, is fully bad. It sounds like it's ripping off John Williams. My suspicion is that he probably didn't have a lot of time to work on it, especially because the movie went through so many revisions like I suspect so. I don't know. I assume it's not his fault because he was a great composer. And there are music critics now who will talk about it being good. I don't think it is. I think you just want to, you know, you want to love Elmer Bernstein, which I appreciate. Yeah. But it's if you just listen to the music by itself, it's a very epic sounding score. But there's nothing in it that's memorable that stands out. That's why I think it falls short. I don't think there's anything horrible about just listening to it. It sounds like the score for every fantasy movie and fantasy movies in particular. Every movie can be, you know, elevated by a great score. But I think about like the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies that I don't even care about that much. But then the da 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 da. And I'm like, oh, I'm crying. Yes. Or like the, you know, there's the great Willow theme or the great, uh, all of them. Harry Potter, the music from Harry Potter. Oh, the Harry Potter theme is so important. It's brilliant. I don't care about those movies at all. <laughs> I love that music. <laughs> I can listen to the soundtrack all day. Anyway. The Chronicles of Narnia score that I talked about in our mailbag episode, you know. Yeah. All of these things. But, and this is just, it sounds like a cheap knockoff version of all of those. All right, now we should, we should definitely get to the synopsis. <laughs> oh, there's so much to talk about. This movie is so interesting to talk about. And <laughs> Well, there is another first at the very beginning of this movie, though. 
It's the first movie with the blue Walt Disney Pictures logo. Oh, yes. I love I love this. And I love that it's still on Disney Plus. The sound of my childhood. Because the Disney Plus <laughs> almost always like they replace all the logos with the newer CGI logo that I don't like as much. But yes, this is still on Disney Plus. It's that classic. Wow, 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 wow. I love it. I love it so much. And that's the last good part of the movie. I just realized I didn't pick a favorite scene. <laughs> I'm not sure I remember to do that either, but maybe I'll come up with one as we go along. There are no opening credits at the beginning of the movie at all. There's the opening narration by John Huston, and then there's the movie title, and we're just right into the movie. You got uh, John Huston, you know, talk about like legend has it. Here's the deal with the Black Cauldron. Right. Basically, some really evil guy got killed and his soul was put in the Black Cauldron, and that's why it's bad. The end. (laughs) Yeah, I can't even remember the lame backstory they give it in this, so I won't even try. Uh, It it is a very cool intro, though. Uh, Even though it is a still image of the Cauldron, like, what they really get right with this, the, the one thing they do like in which this movie deserves to be talked about in the same breath as Sleeping Beauty is great paintings, great painting backgrounds. Uh, Not as good as Sleeping Beauty because nothing is, but... But the backgrounds all look very good. Right, so even though this is a still image of the cauldron, it looks very cool. And you get the big music... Well, the lighting changes on it, too. Yes. A lot of lighting effects on this, a lot of film effects, a lot of like double exposures and special effects and CGI. Even they brought out the multiplane camera again. Oh, yes. But the movie starts <laughs> in earnest in a cottage and we are introduced to Dalbin and uh, Tarin and Cat the cat and uh, Henwen the pig. And I think the movie already fails here. I think this is one of the first big failings of the movie. It doesn't get you interested in the characters from the very beginning, and it doesn't really tell you what's going on. No, the not telling you what's going on is a big problem, and not setting a status quo to then be upturned. One thing that not only the books do really well, but other Disney movies and other things do really well is... You know, setting up what the status quo is and why a character would want to go on an adventure. I was thinking about Star Wars a lot, thinking about this movie. And like Star Wars is the best version of a guy wants to leave his boring life. Yeah. Um, and like and it it's super quick. You got to set up the boring life for a little while before the adventure can start. Right. And and again, the books do this much better. And Tarin, you know, in this movie, he's always like, I want to be a warrior. I want to have big adventures. It's like, I don't know. Your life seems kind of nice. <laughs> we don't get enough. And the first time he complains about the pig, about him went to Dolbin. Dolbin's already like, Oh, but it's probably magic. It's uh, I forget what he says, but, you know, it's like, oh, it's a special pig. There's more to her than she seems or she's a special pig or something like that. Which, like, you're going to show us what's special about her in 90 seconds. Exactly. I will say at the top of the movie, we'll just get the mom status out of the way right now. All the moms are dead, apparently. All there are them. no moms. Everybody's an orphan, so... Or just not mentioned. Like, we... Elon, we in this does not explain what she's a princess of. Exactly. What's a kingdom? What's her deal at all? Right. In the books, though, she's an orphan, too. I mean, you don't even really get Taran's deal. You don't even know that he's not Dalbin's son or grandson or something. That's true. He could be anything in this. They don't say. In the storybook... It actually says 
he is Dalbin's ward. So you know he's not actually his child. And that's in like the second paragraph. <laughs> right, which that detail doesn't really matter, but some specificity helps you connect with the characters. The storybook actually because it has to, you know, describe things in words more, you actually get more understandable setup with the characters and their relationships from the beginning <laughs> than in the movie. Here's the other thing I thought. I think this movie should probably have songs. Yes. Because songs are how Disney movies shorten exposition. You know, pick any Disney movie. But, uh, but I was kind of thinking like Beauty and the Beast, right? Beauty walks through the town, Belle walks through the town, sings the song, and you get what her whole deal is. And if it's a good song, that sells the emotions for you. Like, we don't actually have to see too much of Belle's provincial life if she sings, there must be more to this provincial life, then you're like, all right, I buy it. Whatever's going on here, this is a good song. Music, like... Taran needs his I Want song. Yes, exactly. If he had a song... And even if he's having a song with Dalbin, who's like, this is why it's important, I want to keep you safe, you know, here's what's going on in the world, you don't understand anything, child. Um, and, and then you have him singing along about, you know, how all well, the glory, adventure, all of the dreams he has, whatever. Yeah, it would it would make it better. This is why we think this movie is so ripe for a remake. Just get that out of the way again. But yeah, I agree. You could remake this in almost any direction and make it better. Exactly. So Hen Wen is an oracular pig and she has visions. And so Dalbin says a little rhyme and puts a bowl of water out in front of her and she touches it and has a vision that actually shows in the bowl of water so that they can see it. And they find out the Horned King is searching for the Black Cauldron. And oh no, he knows Hen Wen knows how to find the cauldron and he's looking for her. Right, and it seems to be implied, although again, it's all very vague, that in this movie, Hen Wen is the only thing that can find the Black Cauldron. Or at least the only easy to find thing, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I said that because that's how the movie set it up, but then they find it without her, so I don't know, whatever. Anyway, it's true. So then, of course, Dalbin, for, again, no reason you can really understand, <laughs> tells Taran he has to take Hen Wen to the abandoned cottage at the edge of the woods where he can hide... There's no explanation of why Dalbin can't go with him. <laughs> right. Or why they can't get somebody else. You know, is there like a knight? Is there police in this town? There's also vague mentions of a war going on throughout this movie, but that's never explained. Or or shown. So, of course, Taran leaves to take Wen Hen Wen away. We do get to see the Horned King here, and this is where... He does. This might be my, you know what? I'm going to say it. This right here is my favorite scene. It looks so cool. Yeah. It sets up a far better villain <laughs> in a far better movie. I kind of loved this. And he does. Soon the Black Cauldron will be mine. First of all, again, I love John Hurt's performance. And he is doing a voice. He's not just doing John Hurt voice. And I like his motivation as stated. It's so cool that it's like, how long I have thirsted to be a god among mortal men. Right. And he is like a creepy skeleton almost guy himself. 
He's not quite a skeleton, but he's got big creepy horns. He wears this big robe. He's surrounded by skeletons. His castle looks amazing. The colors are great. It, it looks great. It's just a very brief scene to introduce us to him. I love it. It's the last time the Horn King is cool. <laughs> oh, I think he's cool like, later too, when I'll get to the point and I'll mention. So Turin, of course, loses Henwen almost immediately because he's distracted. Hate this. I agreed. Agreed. It's so dumb. He gets distracted looking at his own reflection in a pool, imagining how great he is. And like, the stakes have already been set as the fate of the world. If the Horn King gets the Black Cauldron, that's the end of everything. Taran should be like, maybe he wants to be a warrior. He dreams of bigger things, but he shouldn't be like stupid. Right. He's kind of stupid and kind of mean in this movie. Yeah. So he hears a rustling in a bush and he holds out an apple thinking it might be Henwen, but instead it's Gurgi who is a small, furry, humanoid creature. Gurgi, they make very cute. In the book, you know, he's he's much scarier. And it's understandable they want to make him cute. He's in a weird middle space. I don't know he's cute enough. It shows how compromised all of the character designs in this movie are. You know, 12 signatures on them. He looks like a weird little old man. He's got <laughs> a mustache. And he, his voice, I have to talk about his voice I dislike it very much. It's basically incomprehensible without subtitles. It's kind of Stitch-ish, but much harder to understand. Yeah. It's weird. I don't like it. I find Gurgi in this movie pretty annoying, but I guess I kind of find everyone annoying. He does go on about his crunchings and munchings, though. And like... His whole comedic game in the scene is that he's chasing after this apple and obsessed with trying to steal this apple and Taran won't let him and calls him a thief. But it feels really rude that Taran won't just let him have an apple when he's hungry. It makes Taran, our hero, comes off as cruel. Agreed. And Taran just pulled this apple off a tree two seconds ago. Why is he so protective of it? And Gurgi lives in a forest with apple trees. Why is he trying so hard to get this one? Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. But then we're going to quickly move into the next scene where all of a sudden we hear Hen Wen squealing and we run off. And then we go into a scene that is colored completely differently where Hen Wen is being reddish pink sky captured by these things that look like dragons, but are actually Gwithaints, but you don't actually hear what they're called for much longer in the movie. And so you're probably just going to think they're dragons for a while. But they're more like a dragon bird cross than actually just a plain dragon. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. So these are servants of the Horned King, which I don't know that we've even seen that exactly yet, but... They are. And and Gurgi runs at the first sign of trouble. That is his character for almost all of this movie. And that is also a very annoying, hard to like character trait. Exactly. But this is where Taran gets scratched. And I think this is a first, first blood in a Disney movie. First actual blood, I think, in a Disney movie. I can't recall us having blood before. But yes, he gets hurt and briefly has blood on his face. And then it's immediately gone. First blood. <laughs> So the uh, they the Gwithanes take Henwen to the Horn King's castle, and Taran's like, "Well, I gotta go there and get her." Taran has failed his quest as quickly as he possibly could. Exactly. Also, the Horn King's castle is apparently about a fifteen-minute walk away from Dolphin's <laughs> cottage. It's across the street. You can see it, it from is. the window. <laughs> it is ah uh, his crumbly castle. 
Kind of looks like Maleficent's. Yeah, I mean, the Horn King is trying to be Maleficent, but Maleficent's so much better. Oh my word, she's so much better. She is. Of course he's trying to be Maleficent because we're kind of doing a Sleeping Beauty riff. Yes, only badly. Yep. <laughs> That's because there's nobody who's doing the part of the three good fairies. And Gurgi comes back for no reason, and Tarn's like, I'm going into danger, so Gurgi hangs back for no reason. Right, he's like, I'm not going there, it's horrible. He's also already started calling him Master, which, I'm sorry for talking about the books, but in the books, you know, there's a reason for that <laughs> at all. Like, Tarn does <laughs> something, he saves Gurgi's life, and then Gurgi's, like, basically owes him a life debt. In this, he just starts calling him Master, and it's like, this is weird. It's a weird thing to just start doing. So Tarin sneaks into the castle to try to save Henwen. And now we get to kind of see a bunch of the Horn King's minions having a feast. We meet Creeper for the first time here, right? Yes. He's the Horn King's little kind of a goblin minion henchman. Invented for the movie to be like to comedically deflate the Horned King, who is like so scary. I, I don't know. I don't like Creeper, and I think it's mostly because he and the Horned King feel like they're from completely different movies, as with so much of this. It's true. And, I mean, he is a lot... He feels a lot like Toadie from the Gummy Bears, which came out around this time as well, and I feel like there's another character he seems similar to. But Toadie, you know, he's comedic and he serves a comedic villain. Well, it's, it's all true. A comedic... ver- it's true. It's all comedic tone in that show as opposed to the Horn King. So you're like, well, this fits perfectly. You're ha- they're having this like feast and music or, you know, not like singing, but like background music. And they're they're like, ah, stuff going on. And then all of a sudden the Horned King comes in and I wrote down he comes in with menace. Like even his people are scared of him. And I think him coming in here like this is also a cool moment for him. I agree. And his head is hooded because it's supposed to be a reveal to his minions that they're working for a skeleton. Which is not very well communicated, but that's what they're trying to do. But the Horn King is supposed to be scary, this avatar of ultimate evil. You're supposed to believe him as a real threat. And it's the thing that hurts a lot of Disney movies, which is like, why does this villain, who's so smart and dangerous, keep employed the dumbest person in the world? Which... Right. And like Maleficent has this too, right? She has her goons who are stupid, but they do one stupid thing. It's a funny joke. And then she's like, all right, we're not using you guys anymore, except as like a blade of meat. Otherwise, it's me. It's the Raven who's actually smart. So that's how she can be a threat. But they use a lot of Creeper. As you said, they're trying to make the Horned King less scary by using Creeper to be funny but it, they don't mesh. The Horned King should be care- scary. It's good for kids to be scared. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, they have Henwen. They're trying to make her tell the location, but they don't know the ritual. Tarin, of course, falls down and reveals himself and is forced to make Henwen reveal the location of the Black Cauldron. Because they, I, I do want to call out, the reason is because they threaten that, like, either you show us how to do this or Henwen's going to be killed. And listen, we all like Henwen. She's very cute in this. She's honestly one of the most successful characters. And she does appear to have some sentience like a lot of Disney animals. But like, I'm sorry. We kill a lot of pigs every day. If it's a pig or the world. 
I hate to say it, but we're making bacon. Like you have to make, <laughs> you know, again, the, the Prodane in the books is all about like moral choices and doing the right thing, even when it's hard. Like, I'm sorry, Tarin, you failed this choice in this movie. Right. So he manages, though, to when the cauldron appears in the bowl after he's, you know, done the ritual and she's doing her thing, he manages to like splash, spill the bowl. So it splashes the horned king in the face. And then Taran does the first smart thing he's done in the, in the entire movie, which is grab Henwin and run for it. But of course he gets captured. I have nothing to say about this chase. Yeah, I don't it's know if chase. you do. Not particularly, except that Henwen gets to escape because he like pushes her over the wall of the castle into the moat so, and tells her to escape. And then he's caught and put in the dungeon. Right. And Creeper, you know, he's he goes back to the Horn King and it's like, we captured the pig keeper. And he's like, but did you capture the actual pig that we need for stuff? And now that we've seen how to do the ritual, the pig keeper's legit useless. And again, it's like. I don't know. The Horn King should be the kind of villain who is killing useless underlings. Like that is how he feels as a character. Because, you know, if you kill him, that's one more body to add to the cauldron born. Or even if you want to do the Disney version, like, I don't know, Creeper has to go scrub pots in the dungeon or something. But he shouldn't be like, all right, you completely screwed this up. You can continue to be my second in command. This will reflect on your performance report in May. <laughs> but until then. <laughs> so Taran is in the dungeon being like, oh, poor me. I should have done better, which the audience is like, yep, you screwed up, dude. Yeah, you should have. You suck <laughs> and we hate you. And this is our first appearance of the main character of this movie, which is conveniently placed pit because <laughs> who comes out of the floor just happened to come into this particular cell conveniently placed by Princess Elanwi. Yes. Princess Elanwi is an instance where I'm really going to talk about the books just for a moment because the books, Princess Elanwi is a super strong character. She is kind of the co-lead with Tarin, even though she's not the point of view character. That's how Lloyd Alexander thought of it. And the Prodane books are seen by scholars, some scholars, as like proto-feminist works because she's a very strong character. She rescues herself. She's smart. She's capable. She fights. She's awesome. She's great. And that was one of the big things that a lot of the people working on this movie wanted to bring into the movie and... They were not allowed to do so. It was they like, nope, not. if Elon Wee's a princess, she has to be a Disney princess. So she has to be flighty and have no agency. And she could be like 1% sarcastic occasionally, but not even as interesting a character as Cinderella, I would no. say. It, what they did to her is very, very horrible. This is her most interesting scene as well, though. She is, she is a little... She's not as snarky as she is in the book. She's not calling Taran stupid, but she is a little like, oh, an assisted pig keeper. I thought you might be someone useful. Well, I guess you can come with me if you want into this conveniently placed pit. <laughs> she has her bauble, which is like a floating ball that ha makes light around her. Right, which is totally pointless in this. Except she does say that... The bauble, the reason she's been captured is because the Horn King thought her bauble, which is just a light up ball, might reveal the location of the Black Cauldron, which further makes the Horned King seem like an idiot because he's like, I'm just going to collect magical stuff until well, one of it shows me the Black Cauldron. Right. And and they don't ever specify this, but 
you kind of wonder if maybe that's why they've captured Fluter Flam as well, because we're about to meet him. Before Fluter Flam, they fall through another conveniently placed pit. Into an ancient burial chamber. Which somehow the Horned King has never found, and he's never found the <laughs> old king's body, nor the old king's incredibly powerful magic sword, which exactly. Tarin takes... And I do appreciate Elamwi calling him out for grave robbing, but yeah. But yes, then we meet Fluter Flam, and again, it's like stop introducing characters. There's so many, and we don't know who any of them are. So Fluter Flam, his harp strings break whenever he lies, which yeah. is another thing we're reading reviews and listening to other podcasts. A lot of people don't get because they never say it. I heard multiple people talking about, like, I thought he just had an old busted harp until I, like, <laughs> looked up the Wikipedia summary of the books. So uh, Tarin and Elon, we start rescuing Fluter Flam, but then some stuff happens that they are cool with just leaving him to die because nobody in this movie is very heroic. Leads to a big chase where uh, Tarin is using his magic sword, which kind of just shatters any obstacle that comes in his way. He also uses the magic sword to slice open wine barrels, which I appreciated. We were watching it with <laughs> my younger brother, who pointed out that a regular sword could have done that. <laughs> but this, you know, is a magic sword because it glows. Meanwhile, Fluter Flam is being chased by a dog, and Elon Wee's just being dragged around by Tarin because she can't do anything cool. Ugh, if that's... This that's the most annoying part is where Tarin is just dragging her everywhere. It's like Again, dude. Star Wars, this should be the Princess Leia rescue. That should be the energy that Elonwi has, uh, and it's not. Oh well. And uh eventually they all escape, in part because Fluter Flam tells a group of thugs to like make way, and they do, because the Horn King I don't know. I guess whatever this nebulous war is, he sent all the good soldiers to that. I guess. Now I just have the morons. (laughs) It is kind of a funny, after they escape, it is kind of a funny scene, even though it's Creeper, where Creeper is having to go tell the Horned King about the escape. And when he tells the Horned King, he chokes himself as a punishment because that's the punishment the Horned King has done on him earlier. And I had forgotten he does that, so that cracked me up a little bit, that he chokes himself. It kind of feels like it's for a different movie, but whatever, it's a good joke, I'll take it. (laughs) Agreed. That's a good, that's a funny bit. The Horned King, though, is like, nah, it's cool that he escaped, he's gonna find the pig, and we just need to follow him. So this is is where it's Star Wars, and they've put the tracking device on the Millennium Falcon. (laughs) And again, the lack of agency, like the Horned King's plan is... I'm just going to stay out of the way and hope things work out. And Dobbin's plan is, I'm just going to stay out of the way and hope things work out. (laughs) I'm just going to throw those kids out there to do whatever they're going to do. Oh, well. Honestly, if Tarrant dies, he dies. (laughs) It'd be like that. Uh, Uh, So this is where we have the very brief song by Fluter Flam as there. Who sings badly, which is annoying. Yeah. I will say, uh, especially in this previous scene where Tarin realizes his sword is a magic sword and is like leaping and jumping around with joy, that is especially where I feel like the animators are just not up to the task because this does not look like how a person moves. And the, the backgrounds are beautiful. Most of the animation is great, but the way the characters move sometimes makes me feel like these people are inexperienced. 
besides the fact of the story not being great. It looks way better than Fox and the Hound, though. Set that bar. But yeah, Elanwi actually makes a good point, which is Taran is bragging and she goes, you know, she says like, well, the magic sword did all the work. You just kind of swung it around, which is a totally fair point and the kind of deflation of Taran's ego that would be much appreciated and that's much appreciated in the books. But then she runs off, is crying and will apologize to him, which sucks. Yeah. Yeah, he apologizes to her, which is good. But then she apologizes back and it's like, no, no, you were in the right girl. He was all wrong. And also like this, this conflict between the two of them plays out like so many things in this movie over, you know, a minute. Exactly. So it's like, oh, we're not friends. Oh, we're friends again. Yeah, Gurgi attacks Fluterflam. And then, of course, when he sees that it's one of Taran's friends, he's like, oh, never mind. And he says, oh, wait, I saw piggy tracks. Because I'm friends with you for no reason. You held an apple away from me and called me mean names and threatened me with a stick. We're friends now and I call you master. Fortunately, there's another conveniently placed pit, which <laughs> is the fair folk whirlpool that, again, they just are walking along. It's not like they're like, oh, this is where they say the fair folk are. Let's try to find them. They just trip and fall so much convenient falling in this movie. I mean, convenient falling, like even that's how Taran uh, found Henwen in the Horned King's Castle. So more convenient falling it's true. into the realm of the fair folk who apparently there was a lot more of them in the original cut. And that's a lot of what Katzenberg cut. He should have cut them entirely, maybe because they're so pointless in this. They're kind of pointless. The only purpose of them in the movie is they end up being the ones who tell Taran and company where the Black Cauldron actually is. But you could have done that differently somehow. Have Henwen show them. Keep Henwen in the movie because Henwen leaves here to get replaced with Dolly. Henwen was established from the beginning. She is a character in this film and a good character. She's your classic Disney animal companion. They get rid of her for Dolly, who I, of course I love in the books, but who in this movie is pointless. He's also very stupid. That's how we get introduced to him is he's a big idiot. He's also mean. He's cranky. Like we don't need another cranky. The whole character. energy of this adventuring party is stupid and cranky, and I hate <laughs> it. There's a there's a whole thing with but they do find out where the cauldron is, and Taran decides they need to be the ones who go and find the cauldron first before the Horn King can and destroy it. We are 50 minutes into this uh, one hour and 20 minute movie. And this is where the plot starts. All the stuff before was just table setting to get this party to go on this quest, which if that's what you're going to make the spine of your movie, which is fine, you got to set this up in like 15 minutes. We got to get these characters together looking for the Black Cauldron. Make it like the Fellowship of the Ring where Dalbin's like, these will be your companions. Because <laughs> all of these characters are kind of found the way they're found in the books, which again, like, you gotta lose that. It takes too long for this movie. At least it doesn't take us very long to get to the marshes of Morva, where the Black Cauldron is. So they go, they find a hut in the marshes and a whole bunch of frogs that used to be people, apparently. Dolly says. Right. So to be clear, like the, the witches of Morven, this are introduced as people who turn humans into frogs and then eat them. They are mass murderers. And then they're kind of also acting as our characters allies, which 
They are both allies and enemies in the books. They're also, you know, way better characters and way different characters. These characters maybe get the most change uh, of anyone in the movie. But it's mass murder is a hard sell from there. Like these people are bad. Yeah, they're supposed to be kind of neutral. They're more neutral in the books. And you also kind of find out that they were just putting on an act about being scary at all. Except for one of them, like it's, I don't know, it's just a much more nuanced. And in this, they're just like, they're super evil. And then they're kind of good and no nuance at all. And one of the witches is uh, incredibly inappropriate, which there was also a very inappropriate scene earlier in uh, in the castle. There's a lot of a lot of women doing stuff that uh, that's did. inappropriate. This movie really got its PG rating. It did. The upshot of the scene that takes so long is that they offer a bargain. If Tarin gives up his magic sword, which allows him to basically play pretend as a great warrior like he wants to be, they will give them the Black Cauldron. And so this is what they're trying to be, a, you know, a big moral quandary. And it's very similar to a scene in the books, although Tarin is trading something different and something he's very attached to, which this it's like you've had this sword for, you know, 10 minutes, maybe. And it's kind of cool, but it's not that cool. Like, this is a no brainer. The world's on the line. Exactly. This stuff is both there's too much and it's too rushed. But he agrees finally to trade the sword and the the hut and everything in it blow away and kind of a cool special effect scene in the black cauldron like rises out of the ground pretty sure this is one of the computer animated moments the black cauldron doing moving around anyway i think so the the black cauldron i believe is a computer animated asset for for most of the movie and you know it looks cool and all the, again this whole movie kind of looks cool but they reveal that the black cauldron can only be now this is what they say the black cauldron can only be destroyed if someone willingly climbs in and dies. Well, what they say is they a living being must climb in and they will not climb out alive. <laughs> Which is its own thing. But they will muddle <laughs> these rules so much. Why even establish them? But So they're like, oh no, now we have the cauldron and we can't destroy it. Dolly leaves. I can't even remember why. You, you gotta cut this party down to... I don't know. I think you get four. I think you get one of the comic relief characters. Pick Gurgi or Flute or Flam. Probably Gurgi because he has more to do. Make Henwen the animal character who leads him to the cauldron. And then you can have Tarin and Elanwi, you know, as our as our male and female leads. That's enough, I think. And and here, you know, at this campfire scene where I wrote Elanwi gives Tarin hope or whatever. <laughs> he says to them all, like, you've all been true friends. And it's like, have they again? You've known each other for 20 minutes. You've just kind of been wandering around. Well, this they're telling you they're telling you that they've been great friends because they haven't had time to show you, <laughs> which is the bad storytelling. We know. So, of course, after this, I don't know if you had more to say about the encouraging moment. No, just they get conveniently found again because nobody can do anything. By the Horn King's army. Because, of course, the, the Gwithaints were following them without being seen somehow. And they captured the Black Cauldron. But Gurgi, of course, escapes because he's a coward. And anytime danger arrives, he runs away. Right, because he sucks and he's annoying. And he's never, ever been a true friend to you. Not that Tara never seemed to treat him like one, but... Yeah, okay. you haven't been a friend to him either. <laughs> Nobody likes each other. And I don't like any of you, but... So the the king, the Horn King, he has the cauldron. He, su he summons the cauldron born out he of it. finally does a thing where he puts 
a skeleton into the cauldron and then the cool green smoke flows out and flows over his entire skeleton army. This looks great, this scene. And all the skeletons are brought to life and they start marching out. Go, my undead minions, so that you can, you know, he wants them to go conquer because there's a war that we've never seen. So these are his deathless soldiers. Which they don't really explain in the movie why skeleton warriors are better than flesh and blood warriors with muscles. Now, in the original cut, I see your point to the storybook. So you can talk about the storybook. The storybook explains why. All right. Tell me what the explanation is in the storybook, and I'll (laughs) tell you if it's the original cut or if there's yet a different version of this movie. The soldiers were invincible, deathless, the cauldron born. They could never be killed for a very simple reason. They were already dead. That's not even what was in in the original cut of the movie, as I understand. What happens is they kill the human thugs of uh, of the Horned King, which you do kind of see in the movie, although it's been cut all to ribbons, so there's no violence in it, so it's super janky. And then you see the human thugs who've just been killed rotting into skeletons, the aforementioned flesh like melting off of them, and then they join the army. And so that shows you, you know, that would be a clever visual way to show you, like, anyone they kill becomes part of the army So they will eventually win any war of attrition. Now, there is a big problem here, which is why would the Horned King have them kill his human forces who are loyal to him and not, for example, the three prisoners, Fluter, Flam, Tarin and Elanwi, who are just hanging there. He does have a line in the movie about like, you know, you should watch my greatest triumph. But once they've seen it, you should definitely get some skeletons. Well, but he also it does. He does say something about like you're next or this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to turn you into cauldron born, too. There's something vaguely like that in the movie. But they should just do it now. Instead, he's like, I'm going to go upstairs and watch and not do anything. I'm not going to lead the army. See, I didn't even get while watching the movie. I didn't recognize that it the cauldron born were killing his human henchmen. Basically, it just looks like they rise, they march out of the castle, Horned King and Creeper go up to watch him from the balcony because, you know, that's what you do. Leaving the heroes unguarded. This is also where the human henchmen are supposed to realize like, oh no, we're working for a skeleton man, but that's not communicated. The Horned King's look changes some, and I don't know if it's because it's supposed to be that we're seeing him better, but now his eyes are glowing red when they didn't before, and that was weird to me. Gurgi is like spooked by the Cauldron Born, goes into a grate... And once again, conveniently placed, in this case, great, but he just happens to fall right into the room where his friends are. But at least he was, like, coming to the castle to try to rescue them as opposed to continuing to run away. Is he trying to rescue them? I thought he was just running from the cauldron born. My feeling was that he was working up his courage to follow them into the castle and try to help them. That's how I interpreted it. But again, this movie's so whatever. You can put your own interpretations on it. And he's he's this is his moment to change and grow, I felt like. You know, Tarin's is giving up the sword and then what he's about to do here. Right. Tarin is going to 
commit suicide. You know, he's, he's, he's going, going to... He's going to jump into the cauldron and sacrifice himself. But Gurgi is going to do so instead. And again, like, I say suicide because... Like, Taran even says, don't jump. Like, it's very, you know, clear what's happening here. And it's like, oh, this mm-hmm. is... Because, of course, they're not, like, next to the cauldron climbing in. They're on a beam above where they have to, like, jump in. No, and this this is the one bit of falling that isn't convenient, that actually makes sense and is justified. And this is another place where it's weird where the movie and the storybook are different. Because in the movie, Gurgi says, Taran has many friends... Gurgi has none and then jumps in in the storybook. He says, Taran has many friends. Gurgi has a few. <laughs> this is supposed to be his reason. I'm like, whatever. I guess they didn't want to be to be as harsh as in the movie where he's like, I have no friends, so I should be the one to to kill myself. Elon Weed does nothing to save the day. Taran does nothing to save the day. Fluter Flam does nothing to save the day. The achievement of our heroes here is that they managed to find a creature so sad and who hates his life so much, he is willing to kill himself to save the world. If you think about it, it's so grim. Extremely. I mean, Tarin does try to sacrifice himself and Gurgi goes first, but it's you don't feel it. It's depressing. Anyway, so of course... His sacrifice stops the cauldron. All the green smoke is sucked back into the cauldron. The cauldron born all collapsed. The horned king is like, what's going on with my army? And and he's like, Creeper, this is all your fault. And then he goes inside and he's like, no, the boy has escaped. It's all his fault. And so he tries to attack. The Horde King is so stupid. He falls for Creeper again. The, the, this villain is so wasted, I so know. depressed. And he does nothing. Even here, he doesn't do anything. Yeah. And the Horned King, he tries to attack Taran, and who's, you know, holding on to a ring, trying not to get sucked into the cauldron as it's sucking back all of its power. This was apparently one of the places where there was a cut. That's my understanding. Because there is supposed to be more of an epic battle between them. But instead, you basically just get somehow, oh no, the Horned King is closer (laughs) to the cauldron. Basically, this just says the powerful backlash of the cauldron is trying to suck them in. Taran manages to hold on to a ring, but the Fierce Wind catches the Horned King and sucks him in and he goes, no! Just make it so that Gurgi's sacrifice sucks all of the evil around it into the cauldron. They, even that would be better than this weird choppy nonsense. I mean, it is kind of a creepy image when the Horned King is getting sucked in because like, yes. you don't think he has any flesh, but his flesh does get sucked off his bones and you're like, oh, he had some flesh and then his bones get sucked into. His death is very cool. I'm surprised Katzenberg let it stay in the movie. Maybe it's okay. Okay, because he's not human. Yeah, he's the bad guy. Yeah, and usually when a villain dies at a Disney movie, it's like Gaston falls off a ledge. The uh, the evil queen from Snow White gets hit by lightning. It's usually like the characters, the good characters can't kill a person. Maleficent gets stabbed though. They they had the courage to be like, no, there should be a hero and there should be a fight. And it's okay to kill the worst. Not even person, the worst like creature in the world, but they don't have the uh, the courage to do that here. So 
so again, none of this makes sense. This is not how we've been led. The, the cauldron has to have a living thing go into it. It has to be willing, but whatever. Somehow the Horned King... Well, he was. Gurgi was living and he was willing and he jumped in and he canceled... The- but the Horned King is the one who has to destroy the cauldron. I don't know that he's the one who destroys it. I don't feel like he's... Whatever. It's, it's it, just... The cauldron actually never gets destroyed... It's nonsensical. This is the point. They don't establish the like Aladdin. The Disney movie Aladdin is clearly like there are three wishes. These are the limits of them. You're going to see three wishes in this movie. Like they set up the rules. They pay them off. So Creeper is at first like, oh, no, master. And then he's like, wait, if he's gone, nobody's here to torment me. Yay. And he runs off and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Also, I wanted to point out the Horned King is the last example of a convenient fall. Um, but, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, and Creeper's the only character in this movie who has an arc. And <laughs> that he goes from being a slave to the Horned King to being like, I'm going to do my own thing and ride a Gwythid out of here. Um, so the castle, of course, has to collapse. The heroes manage to escape in a boat. Creeper escapes on a Gwythid holding horns on his head like, ha, 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 I'm the master now. That is pretty funny. And then after the castle has all collapsed, the black cauldron kind of floats up in the water and there and Taran is like, oh, wait, Gurgi was the hero after all. Which is true. Which is accurate. <laughs> Which is true. So but then, of course, he picks up Gurgi and they're all sad over the body. And Gurgi's actually alive. Yay. And they all happily skip off holding hands. You pull back and Dalbin is watching them in and in a vision bowl that Henwen is giving him a vision of they, yay, they succeeded in the quest and they're coming home now. Dalbin says, you did well, my boy. And Dolly says, yep, and laughs. And that's literally the last line of the movie. <laughs> that's right. It's like Dolly is at Dalbin's house because he brought Henwen back or something. It's unclear, but yeah, I forgot he was there with the with the pig at Dalbin's house. And even though he's been super cranky, now he's not, and who cares? And anyway, the end credits look nice, but Disney Plus won't let you watch them. Is this another first? Is this first end credits in a Disney animated feature? The first full end credits. Remember, we had end credits on Alice in Wonderland, but they were just, it was just the voice actors listed at the end of Alice in Wonderland, and that was it. But this is the first Full. We're we're gonna credit everybody at the end of the movie on a Disney animated movie, and it never says the end. Interesting. This movie got me a little worked up. Let's <laughs> calm down now. Yeah. Let's go into a nice calm sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides, and reboots. There have been rumors of a live action Pertain series, which, as we've said many times, is a good idea. I have two park things. So number one. At Walt Disney World in Orlando in 1986, they changed the Lancers Inn to Gurgi's Munchies and Crunchies, and it was a restaurant. Uh, It was then in 1993 remodeled into Lumiere's Kitchen, which is that's a much better idea. I would much rather eat food prepared (laughs) by Lumiere than by Gurgi. Yeah. And it's changed names like four more times. Exactly. The bigger, cooler thing is Cinderella Castle Mystery Tour. This was going to be a walkthrough attraction at Tokyo Disneyland. It ran from 1986 to 2006. And it sounds really cool. What it is essentially is a Japanese style haunted house, which is a little different from a Western style haunted house. Basically, 
people go into Cinderella Castle and it's presented as though you're going to be taking a tour of the castle, of the gallery and the ballroom and all of this. And there's a cast member, which if you don't know is what the people who work at Disney are called, serving as their tour guide. The tour guide takes them in and is talking about all of Disney's heroes and heroines with paintings of Cinderella, Pinocchio, Aurora, Snow White, and Tarin. But then the magic mirror appears and turns everything evil. Cinderella's painting turns into that of Lady Tremaine. Pinocchio's painting becomes that of Stromboli. Aurora's painting becomes Maleficent's. And Snow White turns into the witch. And Tarin, of course, turns into the Horned King. And so then you're walking through the haunted house experiencing, you know, a haunted house type uh, scares with uh, the evil queen and I believe Maleficent. There's a ghost walking around. There's Chernabog. And the big finale is the Horned King. And the animatronic of the Horned King is so cool looking. It's also scary. There's Cauldron Born who are brought to life and he has a cool speech that I'm not going to read the whole thing of, but it's part of it is like, no one can escape from here and you'll be sacrificed to the Black Cauldron. Oh, Satan's kiln, awaken and resurrect the soldiers of death. I just thought it was cool that they referenced Satan. And one guest, usually a child, is given a sword of light and they're told by the cast member to point the Sword of Light towards the Horned King, which defeats him and his army by blasting them with light. Goodness triumphs. Good conquers evil. And whoever uh, had the Sword of Light gets a special medal. So that's a nice thing to give uh, uh, any guest, but especially a kid. That's uh, nice. Pretty cool. Unfortunately... It's gone. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like a cooler use of the Horned King kind of than yep. the movie. Uh, they apparently also did have uh, walk around characters of Taran and Ilanwi when the movie was first released. And then there was a there was actually a video game from Sierra Online in 1986 that was apparently basically a lot like King's Quest because they just used the same like engine. So, Mom, I do think this is an interesting question. Would you recommend this movie? Um, I find it hard to say. Like, if you're just gonna wanting to watch a movie just for fun, I don't recommend it, really. Like, I just want to throw on a fun fantasy movie. I can't really recommend it for that. No, there's like eight better options on Disney+. Plus. I think Willow's still on there. Watch Willow. Willow's great. Exactly. But I, I don't feel like I would treat it the way of Fox and the Hound, which is like, just don't even bother. There is nothing in this. I think there is some interesting things to see in it. Like, like I said, the backgrounds are really nice. It's more if you're a completionist, you wouldn't necessarily feel awful having watched this one, maybe like just go into it knowing it's not great and enjoy the few good things there are. There are some laughs. We had several laugh out loud moments, which we can't say for Fox and the Hound. For sure. No question this is better than Fox and the Hound. So you're giving one of your classic qualified recommendations and you've given your qualifications. Uh, surprising no one, uh, nobody should watch it ever is my <laughs> recommendation. Uh, no, I mean, here's the thing. I like definitely, you know, thought of myself as like a Disney completionist, a Disney fan. And I was like, I'll never watch The Black Cauldron because I've heard it's the worst. 
As we've said, it is not the worst Disney movie. If you are a completionist, you will enjoy reading about the history of it and the craft and everything. But in general, no, no one should watch this movie. I really cannot recommend enough the books, whether you're a kid, an adult, anything in between. The books really have a ton of merit to them. I really enjoyed rereading them. And I would certainly recommend those. And I would recommend those to a child. But would you recommend this movie to a child? No, no, I would not recommend this movie to a child. Super dark, super violent. Again, as some a bit of inappropriate stuff going on. So, okay, so this movie should have gotten a PG-13. I don't know why it only got a PG. There's no excuse. This is totally, I guess just because it's animated and animated films are always seen as being more for kids in this country. But no, this is a hard PG-13. And like, you'll be showing all this stuff to your kids. To what end? You know, if you want to traumatize your kids with an animated movie, show them like Watership Down or something, (laughs) I guess. At least that's a real movie. So no, no recommend for kids. Uh, We're totally agreed on that. Yeah, agreed. Well, that's going to do it for me, Mom of the Mouse. Thank you for listening. Uh, I do want to mention something I've been neglecting to mention on the Bronze Era. Oh, boy. But if you have any questions for us, questions about the Chronicles of Prydane or this movie or anything Disney related... Uh, please send those into the mailbag at memommouse at gmail.com. That's M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please come back next time for The Great Mouse Detective. What do you think of that movie, Mom? The game's afoot. It's a fun story with a great villain. But until then, I'm me. I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. Mouse.